This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I'll be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman. Part number nine. Part number nine. We're starting to come in for a landing on the series. Are you excited? Yeah. <laughs> we can stop talking about all this stuff. That's... Forget about it for a second. <laughs> so anyway, uh, last episode, we talked about uh, Columbia University and the Teachers College and John Dewey and a lot of the very she just very frank admissions that what they were looking to do was to activate the student body to train them up and kind of this atheistic humanistic socialistic mindset and to unleash them on civilization and they didn't hide behind any wall of secrecy they wrote about it and slowly but surely this kind of ethic this kind of training took over uh in the public school systems and the universities the church had basically laid down and lost the battle and so now here we find ourselves coming to the end of the 20s uh and 30s with education being totally reshaped the church having withered away a lot of the the ills that society are facing in that day and uh today we're going to look at how secularism took basically a death grip on America. But first I want to put a bow on our discussions about Columbia University because we are not quite yet done with them. Uh, I want to talk about the Frankfurt School that's going to find a home in Columbia University. And to start, like, let's go back to 1923, Only six years after the Bolshevik Revolution, where Lenin brought communism into Russia and killed six million people, a man named Felix Weil founded the Institute of Social Research in Frankfurt, Germany. And from its inception, the school was designed to study Marxism and and how to spread it through the world. And so it attracted other Marxist scholars, and they all began to formulate thoughts based on Marxism. And after a decade... In 1933, you get Adolf Hitler, who's a socialist himself, who's elected as Germany's chancellor. And and the Nazis come and they want to shut down the school because the, the Nazis not only saw the communists as a political threat, but in this school, most of the scholars were Jews and the Nazis hated the Jews. And so many of the leaders began looking for a new home where they could be free to espouse their theories on Marxism. And so, who rolls out the red carpet for them? No big shocker. Columbia University. Remember, like John Dewey and George S. Counts, these were pioneers in establishing a new direction of modern education. They were atheist and humanist and and certainly Marxist. And they were publicly advocating for using the, uh, the education system as a means to indoctrinate and to socially engineer the country into a new direction. They didn't bother to keep that a secret, as we said. So in 1935, the Frankfurt School, as it would come to be known, was formally founded at Columbia University. That's wild. And so in 1935, the Frankfurt School, as it would come to be known, was formally founded at Columbia University. And at the time, most academics and economists had come to believe that socialism and communism were, were like the, the inevitable fate of all free market capitalist economies. And this was something called stage theory. And the idea was capitalism is going to naturally yield to socialism because the workers, the proletariat, are going to feel exploited by their wealthy, you know, the fat cat capitalist bosses, and they'll stage a revolution to overthrow the system, right? And so... If you remember in the 1930s, when the Frankfurt School is arriving in America, the nation's still reeling from the Great Depression. I mean, this was intense times, and yet it didn't lead the citizenry to or the working class to stage a revolution. The, the founders of the Frankfurt School were frustrated by this. 
they're looking at America and they're seeing like in the in the early 1930s, like this place should be undergoing a communist revolution right now. Like every other nation around the world, when the economy begins to collapse, they feel the Marxist tensions and they give way to either socialism or full-blown communism. And in America, that's not happening. Why not? Like they're so obsessed with commerce. They're so obsessed with what they can buy as individuals and all this personal freedom. And they don't realize how miserable they should be, (laughs) you know, like, and so we need to come up with new categories that make them understand how oppressed they are. These professors come to Columbia and they start devoting themselves not to to sparking revolution, at least, (laughs) at least not at first. But examining, like, what are the sociological reasons why people are failing to revolt? In other words, like, they wanted to determine why Americans were so content to be, quote-unquote, enslaved by the nation's economic, political, and cultural systems. Like, how can we make them unhappy to where they'll revolt is the idea. And so you get a guy named Max Horkheimer, one of the founders of the school, who comes up with this pretty brilliant albeit I think wicked train of thought and it's called critical theory and it man has this had enormous implications for American society and when when you hear it explained you'll be like wow that is that's totally where we're at so Horkheimer explains that critical theory was intended to quote liberate human beings from the circumstances that enslave them and so It endeavored to lead people to realize that they were actually the victims of an oppressive and exploitative system. Capitalism is bad. You should be miserable. Like, why are you not revolting? Let me show you all the reasons that you have to be unhappy. And so with the aim of causing instability to the nation, they began to export this philosophy. And as a result, critical theory has since become known as cultural Marxism. And and this makes sense. You see, like Karl Marx popularized the slogan from each according to his ability. In other words, if you have a lot to each according to his needs, you should be giving it to those that don't have, right? That's the redistribution of wealth. It's kind of one of the the pillars of economic Marxism. And it's the forcible redistribution of wealth from the rich to the poor. Well, in the same way, cultural Marxism, which is, you know, this is critical theory, called for the forcible redistribution of power and influence from the oppressor class to the oppressed. So it's not, now we need a Marxist revolution, not just for economics, but for, for power, for influence. And so all of society, he's, you know, they start piecing this together with multiple minds contributing to you know, critical theory over the years. But all of society is then going to be divided into categories of villains and victims, oppressors and oppressed. At least Carl kept it just in the economy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But now it's everywhere. Now we have all kinds of reasons to hate one another. I mean, you go to today's college campuses, and this is like this is like the entrance speech. You know, every all the students are learning about intersectionality and and cobbling together all the victimhood categories based on a whole bunch of things like wealth and race and gender and sexual orientation and gender identity and physical ability and religious belief. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And those whose identities are deemed oppressive, you know, are to be shamed and compelled to surrender their power and influence. Yeah, his tactics are working. And any resistance to that is is like it's seen as evidence of your the evils of your privilege and racism and white fragility and misogyny and patriarchal privilege and and all of that kind of stuff. And this has now become the dominant ethic on the college campuses, a central pillar of modern education. In fact, I was looking just recently in 2021 the National Education Association, which is the nation's largest teachers union, tremendously influential over education in America, had just passed a resolution to study how they were going to bring lessons to the classroom. Listen to the, the list of things that are, that are quoted in this resolution. They're going to study empire, white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity, racism, patriarchy, cis-heteropatriarchy, capitalism, ableism, anthropocentrism, like humanity being greater than the animals, I guess, and other forms of power and oppression at the intersections of our society. And so 
like this whole theory of pitting one people against each other and see and learning to see themselves purely as either victims or or villains has taken over education. I mean, it is just everywhere. And this came out of the Frankfurt School, this this whole idea of critical theory that took root at Columbia University, which remember the nation's largest and earliest teachers college in the country is now exporting this everywhere. And so you get another guy. So we, we talked about Horkheimer kind of building the foundations of critical theory upon which other people are going to build. And another person that came in the Frankfurt School is a guy named Herbert Marcuse. And he publishes a, an, a series of essays. One of his books is Eros and Civilization. It sells more than 350,000 copies. So for a philosopher <laughs> to sell 350,000 copies is pretty amazing. And he's been called the philosopher of the sexual liberation movement. And so he advocated, quote, polymorphous sexuality. What's that mean? Well, poly is many morphous forms. So basically your sexuality can take many forms. Well, that's, that's going to come along, you know, give, give it a few decades back then. Everybody probably looked at it and thought, you know, what a pervert that'll never take root in America. And yet, I mean, the sexual anarchy and chaos that we see in our country now is wild. And so he was saying like, get rid of all the, the, the taboos around sexuality. You know, you, it shouldn't just be for reproductive forms of sexuality you need to abandon gender roles you need to do all that kind of stuff he's arguing that back in the mid-1950s and he's arguing that humanity needed to quote activate repressed or arrested organic biological needs to make the human body an instrument of pleasure rather than labor and so he is communist to his bones he's a marxist and so what he's saying is even sexuality is is oppressed and we need so rather than you know have the workers oppressed, you need to use your body for pleasure rather than labor. You need to overthrow you know the the restraints that society has put on you, the, all the oppression and everything else. And so Marcuse calls for a non-repressive civilization that saw quote the body in its entirety as a thing to be enjoyed, an instrument of pleasure. And so he's pushing, and I mean, what, what do you get in the 60s as a result of <laughs> largely his teachings? You know, you get the sexual revolution of the 1960s and all the chaos that comes from that. In fact, in 1969, Pope Paul VI condemned Marcuse by name for fostering what he called disgusting and unbridled eroticism. And he said the animal, barbarous, and subhuman degradations of the sexual revolution were to be laid at the feet of Marcuse. Like this guy was tremendously influential. And here, here's another idea that comes from Marcuse, right? He writes a book called Repressive Tolerance. And basically what it's saying is you need to start seizing control of different institutions. And then, you know, as, as kind of like a the prototype of cancel culture, he's, you know, calling for the abandonment of First Amendment principles. He says, quote, liberating tolerance, which is just, this is amazing. <laughs> so dumb. Liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. In other words, seize power and all the institutions that, that yield influence and then begin banning people who have ideas from the right and welcome in all the people who have ideas from the left. And so, I mean, you look at academia today and it's like, well, check, they've, they've totally done that because it's overwhelming the number of people who identify, self-identify as, as liberals or very liberal versus conservatives. I mean, it's not even close. It's by many, many multiples. In 1964, Marcuse publishes The One-Dimensional Man, and in that he's making the case that Americans are so blinded by their consumerism and their patriotism and traditions that they're incapable of critical thinking or oppositional or defiant thinking. And so this book sells 300,000 copies, and it sparks this wave of radical attempts at revolutionary change on U.S. campuses. And so like he, he flat out talks about how he wanted a Marxist revolution. And he wrote, it makes no sense to talk about liberation to free men. So critical theory, you go and you find the oppressed categories and convince them they're oppressed. He says, we are free if we do not belong to the oppressed minority. So anybody that's in one of those marginalized groups is not free. Well, there's a hint of truth to that, right? But he's 
looking to weaponize it for the sake of revolution. And so he says in that book, underneath the conservative popular base is the substratum of the outcasts, the outsiders, the exploited and persecuted of other races and other colors, the unemployed and the unemployable. They exist outside the democratic process. Their life is the most immediate and the most real need for the ending intolerable conditions and institutions. Thus, their opposition is revolutionary, even if their consciousness is not. And so we need to co-opt them in to this movement. And it's not, you know, it would be, it would be totally noble and wonderful if, if he, like so many others, Christians of the era, were seeking to advance this thing to bring people genuine liberty and prosperity, but he's not. He wants to bring them into Marxist revolution to overthrow the very principles that should be guaranteeing individual rights and protection from government oppression. So he's, he's wanting to overthrow America, and he's using these to do it. And so when President Johnson escalates the Vietnam War, all these radicals believed that this would be the tipping point to spark a revolution. And so they would infiltrate and co-opt peaceful demonstrations to agitate and to recruit people to throw overthrow the U.S. government. And in the course of five years, I want you to get how wild this period was in the late 60s and early 70s. One Marxist organization, the Weather Underground, carried out bombings. Ready for this? At, the Chicago, at a Chicago police station. They bombed police cars. They bombed the New York police headquarters, the Marin County Courthouse, the Long Island City Courthouse, San Francisco's Department of Corrections, the California Office of Prisons in Sacramento, Department of Corrections in Albany, the 103rd Precinct in New York City, Harvard's Center for International Affairs. They bombed the U.S. Capitol building. Like, how did I never learn about this? They bombed the MIT Research Center. They bombed the Pentagon. They bombed multiple draft recruitment centers, ROTC buildings. They bombed the ITT Latin American headquarters. They bombed the National Guard headquarters. They bombed the Presidio Army Base and Federal Office Building in San Francisco. And so in 1968, you have massive civil unrest and riots that are going on at the you know, Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Violence is breaking out throughout all of France and the United States. And these socialist demonstrators are out holding signs and embracing the slogan that is Marx, Mao, Marcuse. Well, who's, Mao is the, the communist revolutionary dictator of China, and they're out there yelling, Marx, Mao, Marcuse. And so he's extremely influential in helping to form this, this new left and organizations on college campuses and students for the Democratic Society, which is a communist organization, the Weather Underground, the New Communist Movement, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, supporters of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, like everything that is anti-America, he's trying to cobble together to, to bring such convulsions to the system that it's going to overthrow it. And he's dressing it all up with it, you know, as though it had noble motives. Perhaps one of the most famous revolutionaries of the weather underground was a guy named Bill Ayers who participated in bombing institute like the Pentagon, bombing the Pentagon, and somehow, like this is just wild to me, never convicted of a crime. Even though he's, he's publicly admitted his role in it, never convicted of a crime, and in fact, he goes on to become a teaching professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. So this is the kind of, which, like, how do you what, say what? Like it just blows my mind. How in the world do you get a job training teachers if you're the type of person that in order to bring a communist revolution to the country feels justified in bombing government buildings? Wild to me. And so the legacy that came out of the Frankfurt School is, is pretty alarming, but a lot of the, the young teachers that were in the classrooms during these very volatile times themselves graduated and went on to become the teachers of teachers. And so with each decade, you have more and more consolidation of the worldview and control of what is being taught in the classrooms and they are running away from our founding principles. In fact, if we went back to the 30s, when we see 
the foundations of the of Columbia running toward the Frankfurt School and we see Dewey and Counts and their influence, the aftermath of that, we see a very deliberate and a very aggressive march towards secularism and the purging of God from American society. A couple of haunting ideas and 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 just truths that come out of history uh, is that basically whoever controls education is going to control the future. Like Aristotle, one of the greatest Greek philosophers to ever live, he wrote this. He said, all who have ever meditated on the art of governing mankind have been convinced that the fate of empires depends on the education of the youth. Woof. Like, so the battle is in the classroom is what he's saying. Abraham Lincoln basically says the same thing when he says the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government and the next. Like, I, I just don't, that's so true. You can see it. I mean, true today, show me the classroom of one generation and I'm going to show you what the nation's, where it's going to veer. And so like, if you're looking at what the education system has been promoting, teaching, pushing for the last several decades, you not only see where we are today as a country, but kind of scary, you see where we're going. Mm. America took a pretty sharp turn to where, you know, the Christian perspective wasn't even welcomed into the debate anymore. Mm. Uh, it basically got removed <laughs> out of the debate over any kind of metaphysics or like reason why we're here or purpose or anything like that to where now you can't even talk about it in the classroom. And just to recap where we started the whole time and kind of where we've been, thinking about what the founders did and, and our whole idea of this rail, you know, starting with religion, the founders declared human rights come from God, not from government. Huge one. Mm-hmm. Then the A of absolutes for a republic to survive, the citizenry must be virtuous people. And that virtue can't be defined by them or it all goes awry like we've seen. It must be based in absolutes. Then the I was individual rights. The individuals must be protected from the collective. And we saw this through the Bill of Rights. We've seen this through the Constitution, the Declaration. Everything is about protecting our individual rights from governments, that they don't come from the government, but they are to be protected from the government. And last but not least, what kind of got lost and will get lost this episode (laughs) Yeah, so limited government, this idea that men are far too wicked, that as they get power, they will keep power and they will continue to grow in power. Yeah, that, that's great. And so, like, I thought it would be helpful, you know, to give kind of a tour through American history from the perspective of the courts. Like, let's look at judges and the Supreme Court and the different courts around the country so you can get a flavor of who we have been throughout the ages. And then, man, do you see a radical departure from where, from whom we've been. So all of the secular stuff that's been foisted upon the nation in, in the latter half of the 1900s is a total, it came from the courts, but it's a total departure from everything that the courts had said before. And so let's go to John Jay, first U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice, appointed by George Washington. They knew this guy knew the Constitution, the principles of America's founding. And so he says, the most effectual means of securing the continuance of our civil and religious liberties is always to remember with reverence and gratitude the source from which they flow. So God, right? Capital S. That's right. The capital S in, in, in the writing. So he also said it's the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation. So that's how he identifies America, our Christian nation, to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. James Wilson, who is a signer of the Declaration, he was a signer of the Constitution, he was a, an appointment of Washington to the Supreme Court, said this, because I want you to think, because the, the lingo that's going to come later on in the episode is, this wall of separation between church and state. That's what, that's what is going to pretty radically change things in America in terms of secularism. So I want you to think church and state have to be totally separate according to the, the court later on. But here you have James Wilson. Listen to what he says. Human law must rest its authority ultimately upon the authority of that law, which is divine. And then he says... Far from being rivals or enemies, religion and law, here, church, state, religion and law 
are twin sisters. They're friends and mutual assistants. Indeed, these two sciences run into each other, which is an odd thing to say, right? How can they run into each other if they're separated by a wall? Like, So you get the clear impression like they had no intention of removing Christianity from society. That just they didn't want the state, the, the federal government, to to impose a national religion like you must believe this stuff. But there was overwhelming consensus that that was the basis of who we were as a nation. It's ethics that it taught and truths that it gave. So John Marshall, longest serving chief justice in history, says this. The American population is entirely Christian, and with us, Christianity and religion are identified. It would be strange indeed if with such a people our institutions did not presuppose Christianity and did not often refer to it and express relations with it. You go back to Maryland, their Supreme Court, in a case in 1799, so still after the Constitution was ratified, in a case of Runkle v. Miller, they Weinmiller, they said, by our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion. Because here's what a lot of people don't know, that the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. They're referring to the U.S. Congress. You can't say we're all Presbyterians now. But a lot of the states post-Constitution still had established religions for the state. And so Maryland is like, we are Christian. You jump forward, New York Supreme Court, People versus Ruggles, 1811. They say Christianity in its enlarged sense as a religion revealed and taught in the Bible. So specifically, we're not talking Dewey's nonsense. The religion taught in the Bible is part and parcel of the law of the land. We are a Christian people, and the morality of the country is deeply engrafted upon Christianity. You fast forward 1824, up to Graf versus Commonwealth, Pennsylvania Supreme Court says Christianity, general Christianity, is and always has been a part of the common law. It is irrefragably proved that the laws and institutions of this state are built on the foundation of reverence for Christianity. How are you feeling about that? Can you imagine a court saying that today? Honestly, no. Like This is like, this, this happened? So 1844, U.S. Supreme Court, they're dealing with a case where somebody had bequeathed an inheritance to a, an institution, right? A school, a teaching institution. And he says, I don't want this money to go toward any kind of Christian education. And the court comes back, and I'm not even sure I agree with this decision. <laughs> the court comes back and says, whoa, this is, a, this is a Christian country. And they say Christianity is not to be maliciously and openly reviled and blasphemed against to the annoyance of believers or to the injury of the public. I don't care what you wanted your money to go to. We couldn't possibly have education that's divorced from Christianity. It's the basis of all education. That's the idea. 1844. That decision was written by a Justice Joseph Story, whose commentaries on the Constitution were the most influential commentaries for easily the first hundred years of our nation. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And so let's fast forward and keep on going. So that was 1844. You jump to 1889 and you've got polygamy that starts popping up in all the Western nations. Uh, the Mormons are emerging. And so in Davis versus Beeson, you have the Supreme Court saying we can't allow that. Well, why not? Bigamy and polygamy are crimes by the laws of all civilized and Christian countries. Three years later, U.S. versus the Church of Holy Trinity in 1892, U.S. Supreme Court says they've reviewed, like, who are we as a nation? What's our heritage? What do we hold in common? You know, and so now they're more than 100 years after the ratification of the Constitution. We're well into this experiment of self-government. And you have the court saying these and many other matters which might be noticed at a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances. In other words, all the stuff we've been reading, that this is a Christian nation. We are a Christian people, and the morality of the country is deeply engrafted upon Christianity. We're still not done. You fast forward into the, the 20th century, and you get to U.S. v. McIntosh, and the U.S. Supreme Court declares five to four. So where the 1892 decision is unanimous, 9-0, by the time you get to the early 30s, what's going on in the country? 
Division. Division. There's upheaval. The church, we don't know who we are. Everything is starting to shake. We've got, you know, competing sides. And in a five to four decision, they rule we are a Christian people, according to one another, the equal right of religious freedom and acknowledging with reverence the duty of obedience to the will of God. Again, like that's a just stunning court decision to to acknowledge with reverence the duty of obedience to the will of God. Well, what do you hear in that? We are a Christian people. We believe our rights come from God. We have a duty of obedience to the will of God, which means we still recognize that there are moral absolutes that we have a duty to follow as Christian people. And so now I want to pause because uh, things are going to start shifting. And so what is the catalyst for that is the question. All right, so remember the 20th century has seen the collapse of the, the conservative church in the early 20th century. It sees the rise of humanism and Marxist ideals all under the banner of social progress. Christianity is becoming more and more like, oh, that's the simpleton's religion. Uh, eugenics is on the rise, like humanity is believing we can perfect ourselves. So let's, you know, start, let's start sterilizing people. New York is hosting the International Eugenics Conference, like just to give you a flavor of the 20s, the roaring 20s. Humanity is going to stop waiting around on God and we're going to, you know, social progress. Well, at the end of the 20s, you find one of the most severe depressions that has ever stricken America. 29, you have the the Great Depression begins, the stock market crash. And I want, just, just imagine this for a moment, okay? Enter in. The New York Stock Exchange closes the Chicago Board of Trade closes temporarily like the stock market crash is that bad. 32 states have to close their banks because there's a massive run on the banks. People don't know where they're finding money from. They don't trust that the banks have reserve capital enough for them. States can't pay their teachers. A mob of farmers storms the Nebraska capital. Nice. <laughs> like that's pretty crazy. You have the U.S. Army that is dispatched to protect the U.S. capital from riots. The U.S. is threatening Americans with jail time if they failed to turn in their personal gold supplies. 100,000 New Yorkers are applying for Russian jobs. Full circle. Armed farmers are laying siege to Midwestern cities. The unemployment rate skyrockets to 25%. Massive problems, right? Yeah, those those would have stackpiled. That, that's, that's a big deal. So... That, that decision in 1931 is happening right in the middle of this great upheaval of the Great Depression. And the next year after that decision where it's, you know, we have a duty, you know, reverence the duty of obedience to the will of God, all that. The next year, 1932, the nation elects Franklin Delano Roosevelt to become president. So he's going to be elected four times, right? So he, every other president that's lived, you know, two terms and you're done if you get a chance to do two terms. But because the nation is going to be in so much upheaval during his administration, right? You have the Great Depression, which is going to be followed by World War II that starts, we get involved in 1941. So all of that is taking place under his presidency. And so he's going to be president for 13 years, the only president to serve more than two terms. And so under his presidency, the court is going to experience a radical makeover, radical makeover. And so FDR comes in. He's looking at the nation that's suffering, right? And what's the temptation when you see fear and panic? You know, all of that's in play. What is everybody crying out for? Save us. Save us, right? Unstrap the Leviathan and come use the government's power to rescue us. What do you do with that, Will? Do you unstrap the Leviathan? I mean, people are people are struggling. Yeah, it's a tough spot to be in. It's a tremendously tough spot to be in. So here's here's the here's the good and the bad. Like you might be able to unstrap the Leviathan and use the government's powers to come in and rescue, but once you do that, guess what? It's free. You're you you never get that part of the Leviathan strapped back down. And so you've got to look at people's immediate needs and their immediate suffering. And weigh it against, this is going to be the reality for the nation for the foreseeable future, right? Like if, if we unstrap the Leviathan, it's unstrapped for good is, is the idea. Well, FDR is, he's all in. 
You know, he wants to grow the government's ability to to reach into society, to give relief to people. And, you know, I'm going to credit it with the best of motivations. I think that was what they were. But at this point in society, you've got, you know, people pushing for socialism and social progress and the growth of government. And they're looking at all these international nations that are going through these revolutions and they're hearing word come home. Oh, my goodness, the Soviet Union's amazing, you know, and so... They're going, well, why can't we have that here? And sure enough, like FDR is going to base his New Deal policies on those very things that are happening overseas. In fact, uh, Harold Ickes, who is his secretary of the interior, he's citing uh, Roosevelt, who is saying that some of the things, quote, some of the things that were being done in Russia and even some of the things that were being done under Hitler in Germany we're influencing the New Deal policies, the growth of government to, to take care of all these you know things that had been private sector before. But he says we're going to do them in an orderly way. And so you also have you know all these policies that Otto von Bismarck, if you remember him in the 1880s, that he's unleashing in Germany or Prussia. And they're like, you know, kind of social security nets, right? You have unemployment insurance and all those kinds of things that are coming out. And so FDR is like, yeah, we, we need that here. And so he goes before the nation, and in a speech, he says, I'm, I'm, I shall ask Congress. He was in New York. So he has this kind of, I shall ask Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis. It's, he has this weird cadence to his talk. Broad executive power. He wants the Leviathan to be under his control. And so the U.S. Supreme Court at the time says, no. Like, that's not who we are. You can't, you can't do that. And so they are insisting the Constitution doesn't give him those powers. And so remember at this point, like, the, the Constitution hadn't even permitted an income tax for more than 20 years at this point. Like, all of that kind of stuff is brand new. And Americans didn't believe in government intervention. It's all this, all this stuff is evolving in the moment. And so at this point, we see a shift in the culture churches if you went back into this day you saw churches were the ones who had operated the schools until the common school movement and land grants churches were largely the ones doing hospitals and mental health facilities and the homeless shelters and the food banks and the rehabs and all of these things that are that are meant to be kind of the social safety nets that belonged to the private sector to the church right it wasn't the federal government's role neighbors took care of neighbors was the idea not just some faceless government that that sends you a check and so you, you look at any like all these hospitals that are older than the 1940s are all named things like what holy cross all the saints yeah holy cross saint michael's or saint jude's or saint anthony's trinity baptist health they're like you have all of these things that are coming out of religious traditions. The Catholic Church has 600 hospitals, more than, that are around the country. Why? Because that used to be the church's job. And so, and the founders never wanted the government to get into the caretaking role. Like that was, that was not what it was, it was designed for. They wanted it to stay limited. Jefferson has this, has this great quote where he says, I predict future happiness for Americans if they can prevent the government from wasting the labors of the people under the pretense of taking care of them. Wow. Preach, Jefferson. <laughs> but that's not what's going to happen. And so, by the way, you can have differing opinions on this. And this is not an issue of like Christian doctrine or theology. I'm just saying it's a departure from who we were as Americans at the beginning. This would have been wildly way beyond what they intended for the federal government. So in, in 1937, Roosevelt's getting frustrated because the justices are saying, you can't do that, you know, that we're, we have a limited government. And so Roosevelt actually comes out and something that's kind of like surprising, it feels tyrannical, where he's like, oh, the court with this, you know, checks and balances is going to tell me I can't do stuff. Well, then I'm going to propose the court packing plan. And he does. And he says, okay, if I've got nine justices and well, let's say five of them are against me, I'll just appoint six more justices, which was his plan and stack the court with people who agree with me so that I get my way. Wow. And the whole nation was like, dude, this a lot of like newspapers and cartoons of the time started making fun of him for being a tyrant. And thankfully it got shot down by Congress, but nevertheless, Roosevelt 
manages to radically reshape the court anyway, because remember how many years he gets to serve on there? 13. 13 years. He goes from, you know, 32 to 45, and he's got four terms. So that means that over the course of his presidency, he gets to elect nine Supreme Court justices. That's wild. That's very wild. So like you think of a typical president, you get two, maybe three tops, some of them one, right? Nine, which means he's basically remaking the entire court to be what he wants. He gets the majority for sure. That's more than any president in history besides Washington, who also appointed nine, who, who launched the court. And so the year before FDR's presidency, before he was elected, remember, you have the Supreme Court talking about how we have a duty to obey the will of God and that we're a Christian nation. Well, by 1947, every single Supreme Court justice had been appointed by one political party. And that led to a landmark decision that sparked a 180-degree change in the direction of the nation. So we went from duty to obey God, we're a Christian nation, to the 1947 Everson versus the Board of Education decision, which is a five to four decision. So even still, just barely, this is the case. And so what was happening was New Jersey was reimbursing Catholic schools for busing students to Catholic schools because if, well, if property taxes are going to pay for you to, for us to bus our kids to what are, you know, a little bit more Protestantly aligned schools, well, we're going to reimburse the Catholics for sending to their Catholic schools. And so people who did not like Catholics hated that. And there were a lot of people who did not like Catholics. And so they sued. And even though Catholic parents paid property taxes, right, they should be entitled to reimbursement. The court claimed that it was unconstitutional. And so this is the quote that radically changed the direction of America in terms of secularism. They wrote, the First Amendment has erected a wall between church and state. That wall must be kept high and impregnable. Now, all of a sudden, faith's role in society is dismissed. This is a big deal. Yeah, that's a lot different from what we read earlier. Radically different. Like, diametrically opposed. It's not like, well, you could confuse the two really easily. No, like, radical shift. Dramatically radical shift. And it's, you know, you go back in history, and we talked about the whole reason why this court case comes along, in large part, was because there was a lot of people who really disliked Catholics. Like, you remember in Kennedy's election, Kennedy's running for president in 1960, What's the big fear among Democrats as to why he'll never be elected? He's a Catholic. There's a lot of anti-Catholic bias in the nation back then. Guess who the author of the decision is? So the decision is written by Justice Hugo Black, who is a former member of the Ku Klux Klan of Alabama. you know anything about the Ku Klux Klan, they basically hate anyone and everyone who's not white and Protestant, right? So they hated Jews, they hated Catholics, they hated blacks, they hated anybody that was considered of a minority status or wasn't like a quote unquote native of, of America. And so this is like an evil organization notorious for hating foreigners and Catholics and minorities and the guy who's writing the opinion to strip funding away from Catholic schools for busing is this guy. Yeah, what do you mean by former member? Do they just like allow you to get out? Or is he just declaring <laughs> himself not one? Like so so when he was in the Senate and this came out, like there were newspapers, like one of them, and the Pittsburgh Post Gazette, front page news, Justice Black revealed as Ku Klux Klansman. And so, like, only when he gets revealed, like, he resigns because he's a politician, right? Okay, so former is in air quotes. Yeah, former is in air quotes. Like, even the cartoons of the time, it's kind of funny. Like, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette went after this guy. Like, one of the cartoons has all the justices sitting behind the bench, and he's wearing his Klan's hood in the, car in, in the cartoon. Like, this guy was not, <laughs> he was not an objective uh, voice here. And so all of this is also taking place in post-World War II era. And now America, that has just come through World War II, we're looking at Russia that is now starting to gobble up sections and to transform 
the European and Asian continents are becoming increasingly communistic. And so America's looking and saying, oh my gosh, we've got all these elements in our own country that are Marxist. We've got all, you know, look at Colombia. <laughs> we've got all of these people that are Marxist. And so that sparks the Red Scare. And this particular decision made the people go, oh my goodness, like we're losing our country. Now they're way late to wake up to this. Like they think, oh, you know, Christianity's dying. Oh, no big deal. We'll be able to maintain. And before you know it, like everything is on the chopping block. And when this Supreme Court decision happened, it was like, we're removing God. Mm. That is like the sum total of the basis of the America's experiment was a belief in God. You lose that, like you got no basis for any of the other parts, right? And so that launches what or sparks what's called the Red Scare, where the government's like godless, like, whoa, we're removing God. That's exactly kind of the foundational bedrock principle of communism. So we cannot have that. So the Red Scare and Joseph McCarthy and all that ramps up, and they're looking to, to purge communists from Hollywood and to purge communists from government agencies and all that stuff because they've seen what Marxism can do when it ultimately reaches fruition. And so it's during that era that you start having the beginning of these culture wars where it's like, no, 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 we're going to enshrine religious stuff in all of our, our national practices. That court case was the first official declaration of what has been going on for decades, but that would have been a scary time if you're reading that and you're like, oh no, because the battle has already kind of been lost and you don't even know it yet, but all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're waking up to the fact that, oh, these kind of ideologies are already everywhere. And we kind of got to make up for lost time in a sense. Yeah. Prior, like when you went through the second industrial revolutions, you had government reforms that took care of workers and you had antitrust stuff. And so you had some like, this is not like pure libertarian where people just do whatever they want. Like the government came in to protect individuals from getting trampled by people that were unethical or unethical business practices. So all that, like those kinds of things were already happening. But what this did and in the, in the realm of ideas, people knew that there were Marxists. And in the realm of ideas, they knew that there were some of these things. Like you had eugenics and you had some of those scary things already underway. But this is the first time where like they're codifying God is getting removed from the nation. And they're codifying we are now and under the New Deal, unleashing the Leviathan to start imposing and implementing some of these huge government programs that will never be taken back because nothing is ever taken back from the Leviathan once it gets it. And so everybody at this point is starting to realize if they have any kind of an education into the foundational principles of America, they're going, we're losing it. We are absolutely beginning to lose it. And so like you get fast forward to 1952, right? You get a six to three decision by Zorak versus Clausen. And you still see nods to who we are, but listen to the way that the, the, this changes because all the states all over the place are going, oh my goodness, they're purging religion from public education. What are we going to do? And so like in New York, they issued a, a, a new policy trying to find a way to accommodate that. Like, okay, if my kid goes to a public school, but I still want them taught about Jesus, can they have release time where they go down the street to their church and the pastor talks to them about Bible or whatever? And so they came up with a release time law. And so that went to the Supreme Court and in a six to three decision, which is pretty wild that three people would object to that, right? Mm. Then they say, you know, we're a religious people. You notice this, the subtle change? Yeah. What was it before? Christian. We're a Christian people. Now it's, we are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being sounds like Dewey's writing this dude. Like, so we start walking away. I mean that, I mean, that's great. I'm glad that we're at least a religious people with a supreme being, but all the, I mean, and it's basically quoting previous decisions where they say we are a Christian people. Now it's, it's getting very nebulous, uh, supreme being religious. And so you notice where the court is abandoning this, this history. And so by the way, Hugo black, is among those vehemently dissenting in that opinion, saying that New York is manipulating its compulsory education laws to help religious sects get pupils. And God forbid that happened, right? <laughs> like, so just very, he's very hostile toward religion. So fast forward, and this is where some interesting history. In 1954, 
you've got Marxism that's climbing and, and creeping all, all into our institutions. And so in 1954, you've got a lot of politicians that are going, we don't like this. What do we do? We're losing our country. And listen to what they do. The word they, Congress votes to add the words under God into the Pledge of Allegiance. So the Pledge of Allegiance had been originally written, you know, quite, quite, you know, 60 years or something like that before. And it was originally written by a socialist. Did you know that? Did not. The Pledge of Allegiance was originally written by a socialist. And so Congress is looking at, at all this stuff going, whoa, like, no. If there's one thing that kills communism, it's God, you know, and religion. You can't, the two can't coexist. And so they put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And so... In the congressional record, they explain why they did it, and here it is. Quote, the inclusion of God in our pledge, therefore, would further acknowledge the dependence of our people and our government upon the moral directions of the Creator. At the same time, it would serve to deny the atheistic and materialistic concepts of communism with its attendant subservience of the individual. Very direct shot at communism and Marxism saying, you have no place here. In 1955, Congress added, in God we trust on all paper money. In 1956, those same words, in God we trust, becomes our national motto. You get it? Yeah. It's like, we're waking up late, but let's go. We're going to fight. You know, the Red Scare, Joseph McCarthy's trying to purge Hollywood, purge government agencies. We are not going to let our nation fall to communism. But the problem was... It had already taken hold of the education system, just flat out. And so all of this is, is great, great moves, but the heart of the nation had already walked away from God, largely. The, the great mainline denominations no longer believed anything in the scriptures. And here you have very noble efforts to try to guard against communism, but doesn't it feel like these punches are coming too late? I mean, it's, it's just like, decorations in the nation but this isn't really at the heart of who we're becoming as a nation at this time yeah very visible ways but ways that wouldn't change anybody's ideas mm -hmm. you know just because you can read in god we trust and just because you say it in the pledge doesn't mean that you yeah that's right that. so i mean i think they see what's coming i mean in the sick what what comes in the next decade so the 50s which is you know we still think of as very you know very wholesome god and country which which i think a lot of that's true. There's a lot of restraint on morality and civic virtue and stuff that you see in the 60s, but they see something coming. And what comes in the 1960s, the very next decade, all hell breaks loose. I mean, you get the sexual revolution and you got riots and everything in the nation turns upside down and a very kind of rebellious against who we are as a nation. Marxism starts to run rampant and open and a lot of the the institutions and it's just it's interesting to try to think back like this is this is the foundational principles of america trying to fight back the avalanche that had been coming toward it and so then like right after you have under god added to the pledge three weeks later you have Senator Lyndon Baines Johnson, who is a, a Texas senator who's going to become president. He's going to be Kennedy's vice president later on. He's in the middle of this reelection campaign, and he's got a, a group that's an anti-Marxist, anti-communist group that starts running ads targeting individuals, and it's a nonprofit. And they're saying, hey, did you know that this senator voted da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and this is Marxist? And so they're trying to fight back. He sneaks in into legislation an amendment to the tax code that prohibits nonprofits and churches from engaging in political activity. And so the measure passes Congress. Nobody really recognizes that it's there and it gives all new powers to the IRS to silence churches. Now a church can still speak out, but you lose the government's going to come and tax your property and tax any income tax donations. And a lot of churches pulled back and says, it's not really our job to speak out on the political issues of the day. And, and this is always what tyrannical regimes do to try to silence the church from speaking out on political evils and social evils that are going on. 
And it, it becomes like the church is trained. You're not allowed to speak on these issues. You just stay, you shut up, and you talk about Jesus and salvation, and that's your role. You have nothing to say about things like, oh, I don't know, slavery or women's suffrage or anything like that. I mean, if you take away our ability to speak out on cultural issues, man, going through history, you see a far different landscape if the church is not pushing for social change. And so it's in this vein, like Joseph McCarthy, who is you know seen as kind of the one who led the Red Scare and did all that, like just to get, jump into his mindset. He says, today we are engaged in a final all-out battle between communistic atheism and Christianity. The modern champions of communism have selected this as the time, and ladies and gentlemen, the chips are down. They are truly down. Sounded desperate, but... He knew what was at stake. He saw it. Now, his tactics, right or wrong, love him or hate him, he's right here. Mm. He is absolutely right. Like the, the, the wave of Marxism and its influences that, you know, in America creep. It's not, you know, a massive revolution with six million dead, but it's a creep where government is growing and growing and growing and invading more and more aspects of life. It is be- this Leviathan is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more scary. And that's why every presidential election now produces apoplectic responses of what's going to happen. Everybody's terrified of who's going to control this thing. No government should ever be so powerful in America that it makes its people hate each other because we fear who's going to control this thing. The Leviathan should not be that powerful. All right, so... So what came after this was just a flurry of decisions that removed any kind of expression of faith from the school. So in 62, Engel versus Vital, the the Supreme Court struck down a New York law that just had students starting with a 22-word regent's prayer that students could opt out of, and that the prayer was, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon Thee, and we beg Thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country unconstitutional and removed. Abington versus Shemp came after a Pennsylvania law that required schools to incorporate at least 10 verses of scripture each day, which is kind of wild that schools used to do that, public schools. So you just read 10 verses of scripture and you just pondered them. You know, that's that's all. And parents could submit an opt-out, like it, all that was in the law. The court ruled that the incorporation of any prayer or Bible instruction violated the Constitution. So that was gone. You couldn't even teach it as electives. In Epperson versus Arkansas in 1968, the court rules that Arkansas is no longer allowed to prohibit high school biology curriculum from teaching, quote, the theory that mankind descended from a lower order of animals. So it didn't say you couldn't teach evolution. It just said you're not allowed to say that we come from primates. Like, I, we don't want our kids learning that. It dehumanizes us. You can't do that. Well, the Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional. And Stone v. Graham, they came and said to a Kentucky law that required classrooms to have the Ten Commandments hung on the walls. They declared that unconstitutional, and the court said, if the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon, and perhaps to venerate and obey the commandments. <laughs> this is not a permissible state objective. Like, <laughs> yeah, God forbid kids obey the Ten Commandments. Oh. So Edwards versus Aguilar, 1987, the Supreme Court comes and strikes down a Louisiana law that just required balanced treatment for the theories of evolution and creation. So if you're going to teach the one, then you have to teach the other, declared unconstitutional. Allegheny versus ACLU in 1989, in a five to four decision, the court actually ruled, this one blows my mind, the court ruled that the presence of a nativity display at a Pittsburgh courthouse violated the Constitution, and in a separate case involving the same place, they ruled six to three that the display of a menorah was not unconstitutional. So, I mean, come on, like just straight up bias. Kitzmiller versus Dover Area School District in 2005, the federal courts ruled that it was unconstitutional to inform students that the non-religious theory of intelligent design was an available alternative to Darwin's theory of origins. So teachers were not allowed to tell students 
that there's alternatives to Darwin's theory of origins. That is unconstitutional. And so you see like this surge of secularism and this bias against Christianity, and basically it was just removed from the public sphere. And we just accept it today. That's just the reality of what it is. Uh, but it's radically different than the founding, and it's certainly a revolutionary change. And so it seems like with every new generation, it just continues to get more radical. You know, you, you, look, you look back at the early 1900s and you see like the, the calls for eugenics and, and outrageous things like political philosophies, they were bad. And then you fast forward a generation and you're like, oh, they're getting worse. And you fast forward and now we've got bombings and all this stuff going on and you fast forward and you fa- and it's like the ideas continually become more radical to where today they're training up an entire generation that we don't know what a male is or a female is. I mean, think about how utterly absurd that is. Truth is entirely decimated. The notion of absolutes is gone to where we don't even know who we are as men and women. So next time on the Out of Water podcast, we're going to bring this plane in for a landing. We're going to talk about where the modern education movement is and then answer the question like, okay, now what? What do we do about this? How do, how do we as Christians, and if we believe in the foundational principles of America, how do we fight to make sure that we preserve them for the next generation because we believe that that's the way that God is going to bring about the greatest freedom for the gospel and the greatest prosperity for our kids. Next time on the Out of Water Podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. Music for this episode included Epic Hero, Under the Sun, Lonesome Journey, and The Inspiration by Keys of Moon, In Search of Solitude by Scott Buckley, Guardians of the Fallen by Ghost Rifter, Reporting from the Scene, Nature and Tragedy by Max Go Music. You can learn more about the Out of Water podcast and Rio Vista Church at our website, riovistachurch.com.